0: A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This is the Second Amendment, and this is The Gun Guy. Boom, 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 boom. Bang, 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 bang. Boom, 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 boom. Bang, bang, bang. bang. With Guy Ralford on 93 WIPC.
2: And good afternoon. Welcome to the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. Just tried to start the show without turning my microphone on. Only 10 years behind the microphone. You would think I would figure out how to turn it on. But hey, we hope you're having a great afternoon. We hope you've been able to go out and exercise your Second Amendment rights. I'm in a particularly good mood uh, for one reason, because... uh, on the way downtown, I stopped by and saw my friends at Indie Arms, and hey, I, I know these guys, I have a relationship with them, I, I teach classes there, so there's definitely a commercial relationship, so take that for what it's worth. But I got to tell you, this is my favorite place to shoot indoors, and primarily because when you shoot indoors, a couple of things are very, very important. Lighting and ventilation. And listen, a lot of people will tell you, um, you know, when you're you're training to 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 defend yourself in a self-defense scenario, you don't know what the lighting's going to be like. You don't know uh, whether you're going to have uh, any ambient lighting at all. That's why a lot of us carry what we call a weapon-mounted light on our our carry pistols, and, and so it makes sense to train under all lighting conditions. And I I couldn't agree more. And that's why I've taken uh, low light, no light. Courses. That's why some of the best pistol classes, like those I've taken at, at Gunsight Academy, again, a huge friend of, of Gunsight and uh, a big fan of Gunsight, when I've taken classes there, they, they, invariably they're, they're, their pistol classes include a, a night session where you're shooting with, with low light uh, or no light. And so it's great to train under those circumstances. However, when you go in, let's say you're trying to sight in a new pistol. You're trying to zero a new red dot on a pistol. That's what I was doing to some degree today. It makes a lot of sense to be able to see what the hell you're doing. If you're using iron sights, you need to be able to see your sights. You need to have a a good vision of the target. And if you want to seek out opportunities... to to shoot in low light or or suboptimal light, then that's fine, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I highly advocate that. But in the meantime, the default position when you go to an indoor range ought to be that it's got good lighting, and so many indoor ranges don't. And I won't name names, but it's frustrating to me. I'm going, I'm trying to take an absolute perfect sight picture, which involves, oh, say, seeing your sights, and it's completely dark at the firing line. Now, again, don't call the show and go, well, God, you need to train under low light conditions. Yeah, I get that. And I've done that. But I want to have the option of doing that. And the default position ought to be that there's good lighting at my range. And I love the, the lighting at Indy Arms. And even more important, not necessarily for your shooting experience, but for your health, at an indoor range, a range has to have good ventilation. It has to have good ventilation because, listen, when you're shooting a gun, you're discharging all kinds of nasty stuff out of that gun when you fire it, including lead. And there have been a lot of people who are professional instructors or range safety operators who work on the firing line. And, hey, I'm I'm a certified chief range safety officer. I've worked as a a range safety um, officer, is the term, many, 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 many hours. And people do that at indoor ranges. And a lot of the indoor ranges, you'll notice, don't even have full-time range safety officers. And those that do tend to uh, only let them work very short shifts. That's because they're worried about lead exposure. And listen, at, at very short intervals, just like you going to the range and, and shooting, nothing to worry about. You need to take certain precautions. You need to wash your hands when you leave the range. You need to avoid uh, touching your, your hands to your mouth. uh uh, when you're at the range obviously eating and drinking on the firing line is a bad idea but in the meantime a range with really good ventilation is really really important it's something i'm always taking note of when i'm at a range you fire a shot you see the the gun smoke go up into the air i want to watch it for a little while i'll do that at new ranges i haven't been to before i'll just there and watch it is it moving Is just kind of drifting up, hanging out there in the middle of the range. If it's not moving, particularly if it's not being sucked up into the ventilation system pretty darn fast, I'll go, hmm, okay. They're leaving that down here to deposit on all the surfaces and to be available to be breathed. And again, I'm not going, oh, woe is me. Shooting is a dangerous sport. That's not my point. My point is that long-term exposure is something that we should all keep an eye on. And I love going to a range where it's actually breezy at the indoor, on the indoor firing line. You can literally feel the air moving around. And I've been up on the roof at Indy Arms, and I swear the HVAC system there looks like it could power an aircraft carrier. I mean, that may be a bit of an exaggeration, but it's impressive. And it's a deliberate; it, it was designed that way, and it's to have a, a great. Uh, Recycling rate. I'm sure that's not. I'm sure there are HVAC people out there that are rolling their eyes, going, "Oh, guy," and we talk about air exchange or I don't know whatever the technical terms are. But I want a whole bunch of air moving around, and I want the air that uh, that I'm breathing being as as free of all those residual things as it can possibly be. And and that's absolutely evident. It's downright breezy. Maybe a bit of an exaggeration, but you could feel the air moving around at Indy Arms. I love that. It's designed that way, and it's designed very well. I love shooting there. And uh, listen, this is not a paid endorsement. I just have a long-term commercial relationship with them. I just happened to notice how much I was enjoying shooting there for a couple of those reasons. But I, I'm getting used to a new red dot sight on a pistol, and I'm a late adopter of red, red dot sights. You know, a lot of people, frankly, now for several years, have had red dots on their pistol. Now, I'm not talking about a laser If that's what comes to mind when you hear red dot, no, that's something different. Uh, A red dot sight does not project through a laser a a, a red dot onto your target. You're looking through a lens on your red dot sight where you can see a red dot. You can see it in in your sight, but as you place that dot on your target... That's what you use to aim the gun, as opposed to your front sight and your rear sight, like all of us have been doing and been trained to do, and I've been teaching people to do for 30 years. It's a different way of shooting. A lot of people for years have been telling me, man, guy, it's faster. It's more accurate at distance. And and to some degree, you know, how your eyes work, you know, what what, what condition your eyes are in relative uh, to your age or as affected by your age, maybe is a better way to put it. Can can factor into these things. Well, you know, what do you see your sights better? Do you see a red dot better? The dot is focused in the target plane. In other words, if you see at distance better than you see up close, a red dot red dot can be fantastic. Now, I've known that for years and years and years because that's the way it works with a a red dot optic on a on a long gun, on a rifle. And I've used a lot of optics on rifles with red dots, and it's great. For me, because the way my contacts and whatnot are set up, I see better at distance. And now using it on the pistol, it functions exactly the same way. And, 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 but, but, but you have to get used to it. You have to, one, make sure you zero your dot. I mean, in other words, you've adjusted it to where it's accurate, just in and of itself, irrespective of your marksmanship <laughs> abilities. And then secondly, you need to get good with you as a marksman. And and making sure you're practicing things like how fast you can find that dot. Again, a lot of times, classes that I've been teaching for 30 years, just with regular sights, talking about finding the front sight. You find the front sight, then you get the front sight lined up within the notch of the rear sight. Then you put the aligned sights on the target, then you press the trigger. And there's a process for that. I've been teaching that. I've been practicing that. I've competed in that for years and years and years, decades. Well, it's, it's it's very, very similar, but it's a different process when you're using a red dot. And, and doing it is different. Doing it quickly is different. Bad guys presenting a threat to you. You need to get the gun on target and press the trigger in an effective way. It's a little different process. Similar, overlapping. In fact, when you find the front sight, as you're used to doing and you can see the front sight through the window of the red dot optic. When you find the front sight, assuming your red dot's zeroed in any legitimate way, you're finding the red dot at the same time. So it's an overlapping process, but it's different. So anyway, I was there. I was practicing it today, and uh, shooting at relatively close distance. I was only shooting at fifteen feet. You know. <laughs> by the way, a quick note: when anybody posts their target on the internet. And I don't know, I, I'm, I, don't, I don't do Instagram, I always consider myself to be too old to be do Instagram, but man, my kids, my grandkids are putting all kinds of stuff on Instagram, so I need to be, I need to, to jump onto Instagram and start doing that. But I, you know, I, I look at Facebook a lot, and I, I don't know, I'm fairly active on Facebook, and it always kills me. I'll go to the range like I, I was today, and the people around me, there were some very good shots around me, some people I knew. People came up and asked me what was going to be on the show tonight. But I'm looking around, and people are like you know are they're shooting at same distance I am, or or maybe a little farther, seven yards, ten yards. I was on the rifle range at Indy Arms goes out to twenty five yards, and at the very end, just to check the zero, I'm like, God, I am i going to put it all the way out to twenty five yards. Not that I you know I think most self defense shootings are going to occur at that distance. Although my client Eli Dickens. Engaged a bad guy at 43 yards and hit him two out of four times from that distance. But in terms of zeroing a red dot, in terms of self-defense practice, you know, you're shooting at closer distances. So anyway, I go to the range and I see people shooting at five yards, even three yards, 10 yards, 12 yards, seven yards. Seven yards is the mythical 21 feet. I'll talk, I can talk about that later. And so people talk about the 21-foot rule. There is no rule associated with 21 feet. If you've heard that, if you believe that, if you preach that, it's it's a fiction. It's like a unicorn. It's mythical. Well, I can explain to you exactly why. But anyway, I go to the range and I see people shooting at, at these kind of distances, and then every time I see somebody post their their target on, on the internet, particularly on Facebook, they post their target, and they're like, oh, I was shooting at 50 yards today, and I thought I did pretty well. I was shooting at 100 yards today. I was shooting at 25 yards today, and I'm like, wow. You go to the range, and you know, and there's very competent shooters around me. I think the person very next, next to me who, who I knew, and he knew me, and he was shooting great little tight groupings on his target, but he's shooting at seven yards. And for some reason, everybody on the Internet is an Olympic-quality shooter who's shooting these you know, decent groups at 50 yards and 100 yards. And I'm going, come on, man. If everybody lies on the Internet when you post a target and put the distance you're shooting at, then nobody can ever take one of those posts seriously. At least I can't. I always laugh out loud when I see them. I don't call anybody out. But it's just kind of funny. But at any rate, my whole point in raising that is that I'm in a good mood because I enjoyed the hell out of stopping by into arms, about b- 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 slapping some primers and uh, putting holes in a target and uh, getting a little better. With my new setup, the gun I ca- I'm carrying most days these days, a SIG uh, X-Macro uh, with a uh, Holosun EPS carry red dot on it. Just put a new Wilson Combat Grip module on it, which I really like fits my hand better, I like the texture better, um, I like the the beaver tail it has on it, it's more like a 1911, which I carried for years, and it feels very comfortable in my hand, and I I shot okay, I ever, you know, I I, I sailed a few, which always ticks me off, I'm not talking about feet, I'm talking about inches, but there I have a lot of room for improvement like you always do when you go shoot, but every time you, you do go shoot, my experience, when you shoot really, really well, you thought, you think, man, that was awesome, can't wait to do that again. When you sail a few or flinch a couple, the very next thing you think is, well, God, I gotta go back and fix that and redeem myself. I had a little bit of each. Some I felt like I was shooting pretty well. Others I'm like, mm, no, that didn't meet the standard. But in the meantime, we're gonna take a break. We'll get back into the substance. That was all spontaneous, by the way. I kind of wanted to share my experience. But uh, we'll get back. Uh, we'll get into the substance of the show. Let's we'll go to the phone lines, as we always want to do, 317-239-9393. That's 317-239-9393. We'll talk about being at halftime at the Indiana General Assembly. And, uh, and listen, if you remember the 2 A project, you got an email from me. I also posted an article on this um, that's going to cover a lot of the same information. So it may be a bit of a review for you. But if you want to know about what's going on in the Indiana General Assembly, including the, the anti-gun bills, the pro-gun bills, um, or you want to raise any other issue relative to guns, the Second Amendment, what's going on in the legislature, what's going on in the Supreme Court, what's going on in Hawaii, I'm going to get into that. That is unbelievable. But in the meantime, uh, we're taking a break. Give us a call, 317-239-9393. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC.
0: Second to none on the Second Amendment. This is The Gun Guy with Guy Relford on 93 WIBC.
2: And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. We're glad you're with us. Tell you what we've had. uh, Let's see here. Anthony call in and has been on the line for a while. Let's go to Anthony. Anthony, welcome to The uh, Gun Guy Show.
3: Yeah, good, good, good evening, guys. Yeah, yes, sir. Uh, not to save my old eyes, but uh, on to the uh, subject at hand. Uh-huh. There's, been, there's been a fair amount of uh, press coverage recently about the FBI using the Treasury Department's financial crime enforcement Net network to spy on people's bank accounts using keywords and key phrases to build lists of people who were political opponents to the administration. And uh, I know that House Bill 1084 is now sitting in the Senate committee that allowed Senate Bill 28 to kind of die, which was broader. Right. Is there a way of getting some key pieces of SB 28 amended in to 1084 put a stop to banks voluntarily doing this?
2: Well, that's a fascinating qu- question, Anthony. And um, I don't know. You know, that's sort of a, a new topic that, for instance, we didn't discuss in the committee hearing Uh, in the House on 1084, and for people that don't know, what what Anthony's talking about with House Bill 1084, it's a bill uh, to address the fact that the uh, International Organization for Standardization is the name of this group, um, at the urging of uh, gun control groups and some very liberal anti-gun, anti-Second Amendment politicians in Washington created a new credit card code. I mean if you shop in, in different places like a restaurant your, your credit card transaction is coded and one of the reasons some of the credit card companies or even your bank can offer you a service to where'll it'll, it'll summarize your spending like you spent you know this percentage in, in on groceries you spent this percentage on retail you spent this percentage on gas uh, using your credit or your debit card. Um, one of the reasons they can do that is because those transactions are coded. Well, somebody got the idea of, hey, we really want to track purchases at gun stores. And the ostensible reason was that, um, that they could somehow uh, prevent a mass shooting by being able to to flag suspicious transactions at gun stores. And, and in order to do, to do this, or, or they could they could spot someone who might be in, engaged in gun trafficking and 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 to do so they, they needed to identify and be able to flag these purchases at gun stores what's ludicrous about the whole thing is that it it, it will it will say that you spent money at a gun store it'll say guy Relford spent twelve hundred dollars today at Indy arms and honey I didn't spend twelve hundred dollars just. For the for the record, but hypothetically speaking, it doesn't say what I bought. I could have bought a gun safe. Uh, who knows? I could have bought gun cases um, that I can I can use uh, to 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 personalize or sell to uh, my my customers, my clients, my students who come take my my firearms classes. I mean, it it, it doesn't say what I bought. You know, I could have bought. You know, three, four hundred dollar AR-15s, or twelve hundred dollars with an ammunition. And by the way, if I did either of those, how does that flag me as a potential mass shooter, or 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 terrorist, or gun trafficker? It doesn't make any sense. But but the but a lot of us are concerned because the and I'll talk more about this uh, next segment. But I want to I want to answer Anthony's question because it's a very good one. Um, A lot of people also look at this to say, listen, there's been a long history of attempts at discrimination by not just attempts at discrimination by the financial industry about gun owners and particularly people engaged in the firearm industry, including gun shops. If you recall here a couple of years ago, I had a a gun shop roundtable, I called it. I had five owners of gun shops. Uh, here in the studio, and they all had their own microphone, and we were going around talking about their experiences and just what's going on in their business. And this was right on the tail end of COVID. And we were talking th- about things like, you know, how supply these days, how are your prices, how are you dealing with the fact that, you know, your your prices are higher to get ammo or guns because of the shortages resulting from COVID, so how are your customers reacting to that? And toward the end of that, I said, you know what, I'm hearing a lot about people that have been denied, um uh, a bank account, or even had their bank accounts closed, or been refused by credit card processing companies just because they have a gun shop or they've been associated with a, with a with a gun industry in some way. And in fact, since then, I had a credit card processor, namely Square, refused to do business with me because I'm a firearms instructor. I said, Excuse me? I said, I, I teach safe and responsible gun ownership, I teach gun safety. Why would you not want to do business with me? Well, we don't want to associate with any business um, that, uh, that, that we equate to gun violence. Excuse me? Gun violence? I teach law-abiding citizens how to defend themselves and how to do so legally and safely and responsibly. So anyway, it, when I asked that question of the five gun shop owners, all five of them raised their hand. Some of them multiple times that had bank accounts closed. And so when you think about it it all flows together, you create this credit card code where they can flag credit card transactions that occur at a gun shop because but because before this code, you use your 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 credit card at a gun shop, it just shows up as retail. And so it could be the same as you know buying a flannel shirt. but you, you it just shows up as retail. Now it shows up as a purchase at a gun store. Now those credit card processors can refuse that transaction. They can decline it. And what better way to put a gun shop out of business than not allow anybody to use a debit or credit card at the gun store? And we were I was testifying for 1084, and 1084 would prevent that. You know what? You can't use credit card codes in Indiana for gun stores. And there's a penalty associated with it. And I'm testifying in favor of this. And one of the senators, of course a Democrat, says, well, can people just buy cash, just just use cash, buy whatever they want to buy with cash? Well, yeah, they still could, but you want to put a business out of business? Tell people they can't use credit or debit cards there. Go put a retail store. Go, go try to, to sell shoes and tell people they can't use debit or credit cards. Hell, there's a lot of businesses that don't even accept cash anymore. People are used to using their credit or debit card. Hell, you almost tick people off behind you in line if you use cash anywhere now, buying groceries or retail or anything else, because the cashier's got to count out your change, and people are behind you are going, yeah, can't you just swipe your card and get out of my way? Put somebody out of business in about two minutes, don't allow their customers to use debit or credit cards. So, 1084 would prevent that. So, what Anthony's talking about is taking 1084 and addressing this bigger issue – that, that, that he addresses, which is another form of discrimination and, frankly, government tracking as a way of infringing on Second Amendment rights. Interesting question. We will follow up more on that when we come back. Right now, we're past the bottom of the hour. It's time to take a break. Says Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WYBC.
0: The show about gun rights, gun safety and responsible gun ownership. This is The Gun Guy with Guy Relford on 93 WIBC.
2: And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And I want to get into uh, what's going on here at halftime in the Indiana General Assembly. And we talked a little bit about House Bill 1084. If I didn't mention the status of that bill, um, it did pass successfully uh, out of the House, um, I was there on behalf of the 2A Project, uh, as uh, as I'm going to be, and testified in favor of it and told the uh, representatives there in that committee, the uh, Insurance and Financial Institutions Committee, exactly why it was a good bill, and was able to, to share uh, some of the examples of discrimination, which, frankly, a credit card code greatly facilitates, greatly, greatly allows. Uh, the kind of discrimination we're concerned about. And listen, this isn't paranoid. The, the kind of discrimination we're talking about, that again, a credit card code, in my mind, is designed specifically to facilitate. It's real. It's, I've, I've experienced it. Multiple of my friends. I was at Indy Arms today. The owner of Indy Arms was in there going, hey, guy, I heard you talking about 1084. Let you know, let, me, let me tell you my examples. And I had heard several of them before. As a gun shop owner, how he'd been discriminated against by banks and credit card companies. So it's real, but not only is it real, it's actually part of a declared policy of the Democrats in Washington, and it was announced during the Obama administration by President Obama as Operation Choke Point. Now, Operation Choke Point is broader than this but it included it included and what our operation choke point is it's using financial institutions in particular the pressure that can be brought by the treasury department and FDIC in particular against banks and credit card companies to induce them to cause them if you want to say bully them into discriminating against businesses that the obama administration disapproved of Included among those businesses are any businesses associated with firearms, any businesses associated with the Second Amendment. And they went to insurance companies and said, don't insure these people. If they don't have insurance, we can put them out of business. They went to banks and say, close these people's account. Don't do business with them. They went to credit card companies and say, don't process credit card payments for these people. And a bunch of banks, a bunch of credit card processors, a bunch of insurance companies jumped right on board, and 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 a lot of a lot of places lost their insurance. A lot of places lost their bank accounts, and including right here in Indiana, it was real. It's not hypothetical. It's not paranoid. It's not oh, gun owners are always uh, you know throwing their hands in the air, waving their hands, saying oh they're out to get us. Guess what? Grandpa Relford used to say, just because you're paranoid don't mean they ain't out to get you. And Grandpa Relford was completely right when it comes to the Second Amendment and businesses associated with those. So this discrimination we're talking about is not happenstantials. It's not hypothetical. And it's sure as hell not just paranoid. It's real. It happens every day. And it's happening right here in Indiana. It's, hot. it's happening to, to people you know, your local gun shop. Ask them. Next time you're in your gun shop, go in there to buy ammo. Go in there to buy an optic or a weapon-mounted lighter, a new gun. Say, by the way, man, you know, I heard this crazy guy on the radio talking about discrimination against gun-related businesses. Have you ever experienced any of that? Ask your local gun shop owner about that. Find the owner because he's going to know. Or she's going to know. I'll guarantee you the answer is going to be oh hell yes not just once but multiple times. And what better way to facilitate that discrimination than being able to identify those particular financial transactions that you want to use to discriminate with. In other words deny that transaction. Oh sorry no we don't choose to process that. We, In fact now that we see this many we're going to seek out that particular business and make sure that none of our affiliates or associated businesses have accounts with them. And we as a business can discriminate against anybody we choose to. And and, and listen, that's the rub when we when we fight on these bills. And I got to tell you, it's a little bit of a challenge for me because I'm a small government guy. I've been preaching that for a long time. My friends will have some issue where they, you know, they're upset about whatever it might be, and they'll say, Well, we need a law that says this, or we need a law that says that. And my response is always, Oh, you so see, you want more government. You want more government control of private business, private industry. More government's always a bad idea. I've been preaching that for a long damn time. So it's easy to to say that I'm being hypocritical, and I've had to circle this square in terms of my own philosophy, because I'm in uh, advocating 1084 to say the government ought to not allow the financial industry to use these credit card codes. What are we talking about? We're talking about government control of private industry. Doesn't that make me a complete hypocrite when I also advocate for small government? in a hands-off approach a laissez-faire approach to private industry. And here's my response to that. In fact, I was asked that exact question in the in the committee hearing by a Republican who said he said, "Guy, listen, I'm, I'm, I listen to everything you're saying. I'm not disagreeing with anything you're saying, and I think this is a problem we need to address." But we've got the banking industry in here saying, we don't need any more government regulation. We've got the credit card processors in here testifying, saying, you know you're talking about big government here, you know, you need to let us do business the way we choose to do business. and 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 and, and I'm sympathetic to that. And I said, you know, representative, I, I'm completely sympathetic to that as well. but here's how here's I here's how I can circle that square. And that is that what we're talking about here is a policy that's in furtherance of a government agenda. It's an agenda of a liberal White House started by the Obama administration and now running full bore, full speed ahead by the Biden administration. In partnership with private industry to, 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 to further, to augment, to enhance, and to, in fact, enforce and implement a government policy of discrimination against lawful businesses like gun shops. And not just gun shops. We're talking about instructors, gun retailers, gun wholesalers, the whole nine yards. And so when private industry partners with the government and chooses a side in in the sense that I want to use my private business to implement a strategy of a liberal government and discriminated against law-abiding citizens and law-abiding businesses, then I think they lose that general assumption that we ought got to keep the hands off when it comes to government control of private industry. Yeah, if you want to say that's still hy- hy- uh, hypocritical, uh, I can see how you get there. But I think you lose the protection. Like, right, Just like people say, well, wait a minute, you know, shouldn't Twitter... Be be sanctioned in some way because again this is before ownership changed, but you know when 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 the government when the when the when the administration reached out or the Democrat Party reached out to Twitter and said, "Man, you need to kill these stories about the, the about the Hunter Biden laptop," and they did, and they did that in partnership with a political party and elements of the government. Does the same rule apply to say, hey, we we, we don't have constitutional protections against private industry? The the Second Amendment, the First Amendment, the Bill of Rights generally protect you against the government. They don't protect you against private industry, and that's completely true. But what about private industry acting in partnership with the government? Should they maintain that same protection? Or does the Bill of Rights then do certain constitutional protections that apply to that private industry? That becomes a very interesting discussion. In the meantime, I'm well beyond the three-quarter hour, we're going to have a real short segment when we come back. We're going to continue to take your phone call, 317-239-9393. That's 317-239-9393. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WYBC.
0: rights, your responsibilities, your guns. This is The Gun Guy with Guy Relford on 93 WIPC.
2: And welcome back. As I mentioned, we've got a bit of a short segment here at the top of the hour, as uh, tends to be our custom here on The Gun Guy Show. But uh, I want to just uh, leave you, at, the, at least for the first hour. By the way, we've got a full show tonight, full two hours um, after the show. Uh, starting at seven o'clock, you've got the IU Purdue pregame show with my friend John Herrick, fellow DePauw Tiger, all-around good guy. Also, news director here at ninety-three WIBC does a fabulous job in the newsroom here, and really just does it. hes a very experienced uh, sports broadcaster, and for that reason, he's also been brought in to the Clearfield Network, where he's doing both pregame and postgame coverage of uh, IU football and basketball. And, and John does a tremendously good job. I'm really proud of this guy. At a very young age, he's just doing fabulous things in broadcasting. And uh, the IU gig is a is a great example of that. So you can catch John starting at 7 o'clock for the pregame show, the game, IU versus Purdue. Last line I saw is uh, Purdue minus, a, minus 17. It was 18 and a half for a while. And uh, the last line I saw before I started the show was 17. And that's big, although Purdue beat IU by 23, I think it was, if my memory serves, uh, at home at IU. So playing at Mackey, uh, I don't think 18 is out of line or 17 where it is now. But I'll leave you with this at the top of the hour, where we are in the Indiana General Assembly is kind of what we call halftime, and that is that bills have either made it out of their originating chamber, if they were filed in the House or filed in the Senate, they needed to make it, make it, have made it out of that chamber, been voted on the floor of that chamber, and sent over to the other side. If they haven't made it that far, they're dead. So we have a lot of bills that we know are either alive or dead. So that's uh, where we are. Right now, we're at the top of the hour, time to take a break. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC.
0: A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This is the Second Amendment, and this is The Gun Guy. Boom, 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 boom. Bang, 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 bang. Boom, 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 boom. Bang, bang, bang. bang. With Guy Ralford on 93 WIPC.
2: And welcome back for hour number two of the Gun Guy Show here on 93 WIBC. As I mentioned, we're at halftime of the Indiana General Assembly. So it's time to take stock of what is dead. It's dead because, as I mentioned before the break, if it didn't get out of the chamber in which it was filed. And and what does it take to get out of that chamber? little schoolhouse rock here uh, in terms of the Indiana General Assembly process, um, that when a bill is filed, if it's filed by a, a representative, it's it's filed in the House, obviously, if it's filed by a senator, it's filed in the Senate, and in each one of those chambers, it gets assigned to a committee. And the first step is the chairman of the committee, to which it, it is assigned, has to, to make the decision of, of whether to give that bill a hearing or not. And so these committee chairmen, chairpersons, have a lot of power, especially if they're a very important committee. Important, depending on what issues are, are are important to you. But for us, those of us who care about Second Amendment issues, it's public policy and judiciary primarily. Although this year, with some of these banking-related bills the Insurance and Financial Institutions Committee have a lot to say about that. Ways and means have to consider any bill that has a fiscal impact on the state because they have to do a fiscal analysis and issue a report as to how much it's going to cost the state or what benefit it might have to the state um, as to fiscal issues. But the chairman has to make a decision and, and, and an awful lot of bills die. In fact, the majority of bills every year die because the chairman of the committee to which they're assigned simply decides not to give them a the hearing. And guess what? They're dead. If the chairman gives them a hearing, he or she has to not only give them a hearing, but also call for a vote. Because, for instance, we had a hearing on Senate Bill 28, another financial-related bill in the Senate, and the chairman had a hearing but decided the the bill was not ready to move forward. It needed some amendments and whatnot. And so we had a hearing, but didn't call it for a vote. So it has to have a hearing because the chairman gives it a hearing. Then it has to get a vote and has to get passed out of the committee by a majority. It then goes to the floor of that chamber for what's called second reading. Second reading is where people can propose amendments. Now, people can also propose amendments in committee. And the committee then votes on those amendments. When it goes to the floor and people propose amendments, those amendments get voted on on the floor. Once it it gets past that process, it gets referred on. Assuming it does, it gets called, for instance. It then has to get through that amendment process. Then it goes to the floor for third reading. Third reading is a vote on the merits on the floor of that chamber. And it has to be passed by a majority of that chamber. So a bill has to have gone through all of those steps or it's dead. So we know right now what's dead and what's alive. Now, can a bill be resurrected? Well, not the bill itself. If it's dead, it's dead. But the language of a bill can potentially be taken and inserted into another bill that's still alive. Now, it can't just be any bill. It has to be relevant. It has to be pertinent. It has to be related subject matter wise to the language you're trying to insert into it. So you can't just take some render. like it's much different in Indiana than in Congress, for instance. They can take, you know, some bill, like for instance, I always laugh, the bill that allows you to carry a gun in a national park. It's part of a federal bill called the, the Credit Card Protection Act of 2009. What? what What is carrying a gun in a national park? Have to do with credit card protection? Well, absolutely nothing. But in Congress, you can just lump anything to, you know, onto. And that's what makes it a really disingenuous process. In in, in Indiana, the, that am- any amendment to a bill to in- insert additional language has to be pertinent, relevant to the original bill. And if it's not, the rules committee will say, nope, it's not an appropriate amendment and disallow it. But if it's relevant, you can potentially insert the language of a bill into another bill. There's also something called a strip and insert, where a bill that's alive, and typically the author of the bill has to be okay with this, but you can strip all the language out of a bill that has nothing to do with the language you want to put into it. Well, now if you strip all the original language out of it, the relevancy issue no longer exists because what you're putting in there is brand new subject matter, and it's all relevant to itself once you insert it. So there's a strip and insert that actually is how we got constitutional carry passed. A little inside baseball on that, which I talked about in 2022. Once the chairman of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate won Liz Brown from Fort Wayne, who despises me with a passion of a thousand sons. and I'm not a particularly big fan of hers. And, and for a Republican is unbelievably anti-Second Amendment. But she killed, effectively, constitutional carry in the Senate Senate leadership decided that would not stand, and we ended up using a strip and insert to get constitutional carry resurrected. So, when we talk about what's alive and what's dead, keep in mind, something can come back, can rise from the dead as part of an amendment or a, quote-unquote, strip and insert process. Both those things exist. They, they. I wouldn't say they're used often, but they're certainly used enough to be of significance and something to be aware of. With that in mind, we'll talk about more, more about, I should say, what's alive and what's dead. In the meantime, Norm has been on hold for forever, and so Norm, I appreciate your patience, brother. Um, I wanted to bring you in. What, uh, what you got for us?
3: Well, I wanted to thank you for covering this topic, and and um, you know. You've even given me a little bit more education than I already had. Cool. Uh, but uh, I want to support what you're saying as well. And, and also wanted to go back in time a little bit to the late 90s, early 2000s. Something similar to this was happening at that point as well, because there were a number of ammunition purchases that I made at that time. Nothing extravagant. A couple of boxes of handgun or a couple of boxes of ammo for my uh, coyote rifle. huh Uh-huh. Uh, And I was getting calls from my credit card company saying, hey, were you aware that somebody made a purchase of ammunition at this store using your card? And I said, well, yeah, it's me. Yeah, Why are you calling me about this? Yeah, exactly.
2: It begs the question of why that was getting flagged.
3: Hard. And after about three or four times, I said, look, one more time on this, and I'm going to cancel the card, which I eventually did. No kidding. Yeah.
2: Do you remember what the credit card company was or what the bank was?
3: I believe that it was a GM card, which I think at the time was being administered by Discover.
2: Okay. yeah, And, and those aren't names that, that get associated with a lot of the, of the discrimination. For instance, Chase Bank has right. been right up front and getting named a lot. Uh, again, the credit card processor, Square, uh, I only say them because they're the ones who wouldn't do business with me which still offends me. Um, so that, you know, it's an important point, Norm, and I'm really glad that you called the Gun Guy Show, and thanks so much for your patience. I mean, Norm called in before the break at the top of the hour, and I, I know sometimes when I'm, I'm on a bit of a a rant or, or I have a stream of consciousness going, I can leave people on hold for a while. So when rock stars like, like Norm, one, it's an important comment, and I'm glad that he had the patience to hang on, um, But it's greatly appreciated by me because we really uh, appreciate our callers. And on that note, we want to get more of you. Give us a call, 317-239-9393. You have a bill you'd like to see in the Indiana General Assembly? It may be there. You may not just be aware of it. Is there one you're concerned about? You want to know what the status of anything going is? Anything else 2A related you want to call in and discuss, give us a call. That's why we're here, 317-239-9393. That's 317-239. 239-9393 239-9393 This is Guy Ralford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WYBC.
1: Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love hanging with friends who lift you up and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between.
0: Now, you've got a gun guy. Guy Relford on 93 WIPC.
2: And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIPC. So let's talk about what's alive and what's dead. In the Indiana General Assembly, as to those bills that affect your second amendment rights and every year i mean one of the reasons i formed the two way project is that every single year if you're paying attention there are several bills that our pro second amendment legislators file in order to to further enhance your second amendment rights here in Indiana to protect them it, to improve them to take them beyond where they currently are and People don't appreciate, you know, a lot of people uh, spend a lot of time, including right here on this radio station, complaining about the Indiana General Assembly. And listen, there are things to complain about. Do I think, you know, taxes are still too high in, in Indiana? Yeah, I think there's an argument to be had. Uh, people were upset there was no suspension of the gas tax when, due to Biden's policies, the gas prices were completely out of control that affected a lot of people in very dramatic ways. Do I think the General Assembly should have stepped up and done something with the gas tax during those incredibly times of uh, amazingly high gas prices? I, I think they should have. Do I think the Indiana General Assembly should have done more on property taxes? I think there's a very legitimate argument to say they should have. So there, there, there's, there, there are things to criticize, no, no doubt. But, but, But... but When you have a shtick, when when you have your whole approach, it's completely one-sided to say, well, you know, the legislature's bad. The Republicans are the same as the Democrats. They're all the same. They're all corrupt. They're all controlled by their contributors, by their donors. No one's out for you. They hate you as a common citizen. They only care about themselves. They only care about lining their pocket. When you have a shtick like that, and, 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 and you, need to, you feel the need to mold everything you see, everything you hear, to fit your shtick. You're going to be wrong a large percentage of the time. Because the truth simply doesn't bear all that out. Not on a universal basis, like so many different people portray it. Again, right here on this radio station included. You need to pay attention and you need to assess people individually. When you generalize... You treat everybody the same. That's, what is that? That's bias. That's prejudice. You're prejudging people's conduct before you actually evaluate it objectively and independently based on that conduct. And if you're going to have a more intelligent conversation, it takes a little more work to do the research and look into what's actually going on on an individual basis. But if you do that, if you invest that time is particularly when you're looking at issues like Second Amendment issues in Indiana, you see there are an awful lot of legislators that have done an awful lot of really good work and put a lot on the line and and sometimes expended their own political capital to say, oh, no, I'm standing up for what's right and taking on leadership in order to get things done like constitutional carry. I had all these people for years, and for years they were right, but I had people telling me for years, oh, you'll never get constitutional carry passed in Indiana. Guy, you're naive. People more extreme than that. Guy, you're an idiot. Republican leadership will never let it happen in Indiana. They're going to talk a good game, and they're going to kill it behind closed doors. And you know what? People who said that looked really smart for a lot of years because they were completely right because that's exactly what happened. But that was in the in, in that was that was in the face of that was despite the really good efforts and really hard work of a lot of legislators who were trying really hard to make it happen. And eventually, yes, we got it done, and, and we look at that as a as a great example. And again, even in the year it passed, I had people telling me, "Oh, guy, you have no idea what you're talking about. You're being, you're completely naive. Republicans are never going to let it happen." they're going to lead you along and deceive you into thinking they're on your side when they're going to just turn around and stab you in the back at the end of the day. Well, they didn't, and we got it done, and we got it done by a wide margin. But that's not the only example. I mean, look back over the years. People lose track of this. Do you know how many pro-2A bills we've passed in the last 10 or 15 years the number is incredible. And I've got my name on a bunch of them. I mean, I've either written them or I've contributed to them. Or I've, I've helped write them. I've, I've, I've provided input that resulted in amendments to them. On, I'm talking about at least a dozen that are now the law of the state of Indiana. Going back to 2011, I think one of the most important bills that we have in Indiana when it comes to 2A rights is the Indiana Firearms Preemption Act. Now, we had a Democrat senator try to gut that this year, Fadi Kadura, and I'll talk more about that bill here after the bottom of the hour. But the preemption acts says local governments, like the city of Indianapolis, like a mayor like Joe Hogsett and his captive city county council, can't repeal constitutional carry in Marion County, despite the ordinance they passed trying to do just that. They can't banned so-called assault weapons in Marion County, despite the ordinance they passed that would do just that. They can't do it. It's illegal. And if they do it, we can sue them. And I've sued people, multiple people, dozens. I say people, I mean local governments who try to regulate firearms, even though the Preemption Act says they can't. And if they do, there's liquidated damages. You can have that ordinance, that regulation, whatever it might be, declared invalid, void, And you can recover liquidated damages of four times your attorney's fees. The statute says three times attorney's fees plus attorney's fees. You want to litigate that for three, four, or five years and then lose? City of whatever? I'm talking four times attorney's fees. That's a big old chunk in some cases. And we've won those cases, we've settled those cases for an appreciable amount of money. And the word goes out hey, don't have these ordinances on the books. The local government can't pass an ordinance, for instance, that says, well, you can't have a gun in a city park. That's illegal. They can't do it. Now, there are certain exceptions, like they can prohibit buildings, they can, they can prohibit firearms, I should say, in buildings that contain a courtroom. All right. There's what we call the Jimmy Ursay exception, where an organizer or promoter of an event who leases property from a political subdivision, that's a local government, can prohibit firearms for that event. So that's why the city of Indianapolis can help the Colts enforce a no-weapons policy in Lucas Oil Stadium. Or the Pacers, I just went to a Pacer game Thursday night, could not carry either my pocket knife or my pistol, and both of which irritated the hell out of me, but I could not carry And they can get away with that and they can have IMPD help enforce it because the Pacers, as the organizer or promoter of an event, the leases property, that is Gainbridge Fieldhouse from the city of Indianapolis, can prohibit firearms. So there are certain exceptions, but the exceptions are very limited. And outside that, local governments can't regulate firearms. Senator Jim Toms from southwestern Indiana down Poseyville was the author of that bill and fought it through and had a lot of resistance. Man, the Indiana Association of Cities and Towns came in and fought it like hell and got it passed. And that's huge. That's huge. That's what separates Indiana from an awful lot of other states because little local governments and, and you don't think the city of Bloomington would strip you of every second amendment right they possibly could if they could get away with it? Hammond... Fort Wayne, it goes on and on. Evansville, hell yes they would. The Preemption Act prevents them from doing so. We've made amendment after amendment to the the statute that says it's a crime to have a gun on school property in Indiana. Now you can have, and I wrote this, worked with Jim Lucas to get it passed. Now you can have a gun stored out of sight in a locked vehicle on school property. I, there used to be a felony. Before four or five years ago, we changed that. The law used to say that 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 if you had a gun on property being used by a school for a school function, then you'd be committing a felony. Property being used by a school for a school function. So, what if I'm in a restaurant and three but three buses pull up and a bunch of school kids trundle out, walk into the restaurant because they're taking a lunch break from the field trip they're on. Is that restaurant now property being used by a school for a school function? Well sure it is. And if I'm possessing my firearm, I'm committing a felony now? What if I'm staying in a hotel while there's a high school prom going on in the ballroom of that hotel? Is that hotel now property being used by a school's function? So by a school for a school function, I should say. So I'm now committing a felony by having my gun in my hotel room? What? Or in the lobby as I'm checking in? It's ridiculous. Well, we convinced the Indiana General Assembly it was ridiculous. In a bill that that I authored, I mean, I wrote it. Jim Lucas authored it in the General Assembly, and we got it passed. The self-defense immunity bill that I wrote, again, introduced by Jim Lucas. Jim's catching a lot of flack here lately, and I get it. I had him on the show last week won't rehash all of that, but don't forget what Jim Lucas has done for the Second Amendment in Indiana. He was the the author of our constitutional carry bills year after year after year. When leadership told him to back up and back down and don't hit me in the face with this damn constitutional carry bill again, he said, I'm sorry, I'm going to force a vote on this thing. I'm going to keep introducing it until we get a vote. And you know what? That pure stubbornness and tenacity— and the willingness to stand up to leadership ended up getting the damn thing passed into 2022. In a bill he co-authored, authored by Ben Smaltz from Auburn, another hero of the Second Amendment. But the self-defense immunity bill, been on the books since 2019, says if you use a firearm or any in any act of self-defense, you don't have to use a weapon. You can use any weapon as long as it's a lawful and justified use of force in self-defense. Under the self-defense statute, then you have absolute immunity to civil liability as a result of that use of force. Because for years and years and years, you you know, I've been to uh, countless firearm training courses where at some point the instructor says, by the way, if you ever defend yourself, defend your home, defend someone else, the bad guy gets hurt, he's going to sue you. If you shoot a bad guy and he dies, his family's going to sue you. Just count on it. They're going to sue you. Just be prepared. I used to go to a, a training institute before it imploded out in Pahrumpa, Nevada, about an hour outside of Vegas. I've been there a bunch of times. And they give a lecture called Battles 2 and 3. And, and it was mandatory. If you go out there, you have to sit through this at least once. And and what are Battles 2 and 3? Well, you just won the gunfight. Now you got to worry about Battles 2 and 3. Battle 2 is potentially getting prosecuted for a crime. Battle 3 is... Civil liability, getting sued for money by the bad guy or by the family of a dead bad guy. And then I've had countless lecturers stand there and say, well, if you use force, you're going to get sued. Just count on it. And after defending a whole bunch of clients in just such civil litigation, I said, no, that's enough. Not in Indiana. So I wrote a bill, self-defense immunity. You have absolute absolute, um, immunity from liability. And if someone sues you, we created a vehicle to get that case dismissed early. And once you get it dismissed on the basis of the immunity, the family of the dead bad guy who sued you has to pay all your attorney's fees. Does that work? Hell yeah, it works. I just had a case successfully dismissed where a person defended their home against a guy breaking in, tried to kick in the door, tried to shoulder the door open, went around the back, broke a window, was trying to climb through the window. Homeowner lawfully and justifiably used deadly force in self-defense. Family of the Dead bad guy sued him. What happened to that lawsuit? Got dismissed early on what we call summary judgment, as the bill is designed. And we just got a $12,000 attorney's fees. Oh, check that. I think it's $15,000 attorney's fee award. Now we're trying to collect it. Will we try to collect it? Hell yeah. I'm going to send that message. Don't file these lawsuits. But that's another bill we got passed here in Indiana. My point is, on the Second Amendment, We've done great things in the Indiana General Assembly. Is that due in part to people like members of the 2A Project, the organization we started here a few years ago? Yeah, hell yeah, because they show up. We show up. I'm going to be there as the guy who founded the 2A Project. Our members show up. We've shown that this year and last year and during constitutional carry as we were getting that through the General Assembly. But it's due also to some really pro-2A legislators. So when you hear people, oh, Republicans are no different than Democrats, yeah, well, I'm going to go through the list of bills that are alive and dead on 2A issues. Who filed your anti-2A bills trying to restrict your Second Amendment rights? With almost no exceptions, Democrats. Who filed the bills to protect and enhance your Second Amendment rights? Republicans. You don't think it matters? You think they're all the same? You think they're all corrupt? You think they just give lip service to the Constitution while they're stabbing you in the back behind closed doors? Not when it comes to the Second Amendment. And I'm a, guy right, I'm a guy right there in the trenches. I'm talking to them. I'm seeing them vote. So don't paint everybody with the same brush when you hear that. Just know it's out of ignorance. It's, out of, it's from people who don't spend much time in the General Assembly. Just want to crow about them without a whole hell of a lot of background in the process. In the meantime, we're past the bottom of the hour, as we always do. We're going to take a break. Uh, Give us the phone call, 317-239-9393. Join the discussion, 317-239-9393. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC.
1: Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between.
0: He's a Second Amendment attorney. He's an NRA certified firearms instructor. He's the gun guy. Guy Ralford on 93 WIPC.
2: And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And so, if you don't think there are things to fight every year in the Indiana General Assembly, let's talk about some of the bills that were filed this year. Senator Lonnie Randolph, Democrat, of course, from Indianapolis, filed a couple of different bills. Raising the age for constitutional carry to 21. It's currently 18. Why is it eighteen? Because when we have the when we had the requirement of a license to carry a handgun here in Indiana, you could get a license at eighteen. Doing away with a license requirement made sense to keep it the same. But oh no, Senator Randolph would say that needs to be raised to twenty-one. Under a theory, I guess that at eighteen and nineteen and twenty, you can go into the armed services, you can be deployed to a foreign land, you can carry a select fire or fully automatic firearm, you can run an artillery battery, you can can run a tank, pilot a drone, handle any number of deadly weapons, and you're mature enough to do that. But once you come home after putting your life on the line in a foreign land, Having watched friends around you die fighting for the constitutional freedoms of those folks back here at home, once you come home, you can't carry a handgun the same way everybody else can. There are going to be more restrictions on you because you're not 21? Does that make any sense to you? That's what one senator from Indianapolis wanted to have happen. The same senator filed two different bills addressed to the issue of having a gun in a polling place. Senate Bill 26 and Senate Bill 163 both have to do with when you go to vote, apparently, to exercise one constitutional right, and the right to vote is protected in the Constitution to the extent that people can't deprive you your right to vote on, for instance, racially motivated reasons. But, In order to go exercise your right to vote, you have to sacrifice your rights under the Second Amendment, is the theory behind that. And there's no federal law that says you can't possess a gun in a polling place. There's no Indiana law that says you can't possess a gun in a polling place. That's what Senator Randolph wants to fix with Senate Bill 26 and 163. Senator Andrea Hunley wants to have universal background checks in Indiana. Because, of course, a criminal who's buying a gun from another criminal or trading a kilo of cocaine for a, a, a trunkload of guns or is selling a gun they just stole on the street to his fellow gang members or, or stole out of a house that he just burglarized. Of course, if there's a new law that says, well, you have to put that person you're selling that gun to through a background check. You have to take them to a gun store and have the gun store perform a background check, or else you can't sell that gun. Of course, that criminal on the street, that gang member, that person who's already a prohibited possessor themselves, because they have multiple felonies, who's selling that gun to another prohibited possessor who also has multiple felonies, or a fellow gang member who wants to buy a gun in a private transaction because he's a criminal and can't buy a gun from a gun store, of course they're going to comply with that law. Of course they are. Or not. Or not. And of course they're not. But so who's that law going to affect? The law abiding citizen. It makes no sense. Plus, how do you prove someone bought or sold a gun without a background check unless you have registration? Unless you know who owns every gun with registration, like we register vehicles, you can't prove who sold a gun or who bought a gun with or without a background check unless somebody confesses, unless somebody drops a dime. So you have, an, you have an, a, a, an unprovable crime, an unenforceable statute that's simply going to add to the burden on law-abiding gun owners, and is isn't going to affect criminals at all. But that's what Senator Andrea Hundley wanted to accomplish. Fadi Kadura, we've talked about, wanted to amend the Firearms Preemption Act to allow not just the city of Indianapolis, Now he, again, he's a senator from Indianapolis. And by the way, he was uh, on a, a couple of the committees, uh, well, in particular, the Insurance and Financial Institutions uh, Committee that I testified in front of on Senate Bill 28 on financial discrimination. If I have time, I'll get into that before the show's over tonight. And I got to tell you, Senator Kudur, I thought, was a gentleman who asked good questions, and, and I enjoyed my interaction with him. I, I I think he did a nice job, and he asked thoughtful and good questions. And I want to give credit where credit is due. However, he's also a guy that introduced the bill that would allow the city of Indianapolis and any other local government to regulate firearms despite the Preemption Act because his bill would amend the Preemption Act to say local governments aren't really prohibited from regulating firearms. For instance, they can ban firearms like so-called assault weapons. They can ban constitutional carry that can affect the age at which you can buy a, a, a long gun or any firearm and basically have a, a complete autonomy in terms of regulating firearms. Not complete. It was limited to certain areas of regulation. But it would allow Joe Hogsett to do what he wants to do in Indianapolis. And when Joe Hogsett introduced his ordinance to do all, to institute all of his gun control proposals that he introduced during his candidacy for mayor, which, for whatever reason, the Republican candidate thought was a great idea, so he emulated the whole damn thing. He said, well, now we have to amend the Preemption Act in order for this to go into effect, because the city passed the ordinance. It's just contingent on going into effect until the preemption law is amended. That's what Fadi Kedera, Senator Fadi Kadura's bill would have done. But we're not done... We're not done there. Um, there was a a, a bill. And this was introduced by a Republican, so it was very disappointing. That would pr- put huge restrictions on the pr- on the expungement statute. So you don't really get your rights back after a, a conviction is expunged, unless a judge decides that you should. In other words, it takes the it takes the it, the real the real meat and the real teeth out of the expungement statute when it comes to restoring people's rights. I strongly oppose this, and I was very worried about it. Uh, Senator Sue Arrington, or no, excuse me, Representative Sue Arrington introduced a bill that would raise the age to buy a long gun in Indiana to 21, similar to what we saw in the Senate. And then there was a safe storage bill introduced that would make it a crime to store your gun in such a way that a, a juvenile can get a hold of it. Now, on its face, that sounds OK. We're going to take a break. I'll come back and, t- and talk about why I oppose safe storage bills. And I was interviewed a couple of times. Um, On local media, uh, both uh, Channel 6 and and Fox 59 interviewed me on this point, and I expressed it there. But I'll I'll reiterate that. Good news is, every bill I just went through, all anti-Second Amendment, the vast majority of which, all but one of which was introduced by Democrats, they're all dead. They didn't get a committee hearing. After strong opposition from groups like the 2A Project, they are all dead. But don't think it doesn't take a battle every year. It does. That's why Thomas Jefferson said what he said, which is the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. That's what we talk about here on The Gun Guy Show. We're taking a break. We'll be back for another short segment at the top of the hour. This is Guy Ralford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC.
0: Second to none on the Second Amendment. This is The Gun Guy with Guy Ralford on 93 WIBC.
2: And welcome back for the last rather short segment here on the Gun Guy Show here this evening. So what's still alive in the Indiana General Assembly? Well, we've got House Bill 1084 I talked about. That would prohibit the use of these credit card codes that in my mind are only there to try to discriminate against gun-related businesses, law-abiding. Businesses run by good people. This is the financial industry, I think, facilitating their own discrimination. Then you have... Uh, House Bill 1235, this would uh, finally, after 20, I think 24 years, there's been a lawsuit pending by the city of Gary against basically the whole firearms industry, trying trying to blame the firearms industry for gun violence in Gary. As ludicrous as that is, this thing's been lingering forever. You've got judges that have allow, allowed it to stay alive, even though there's a law in Indiana that says You can't sue the seller or the manufacturer of a firearm that's bought and then used in a crime. But the city of Gary has maintained this thing. House Bill 1235 would finally put an end to that. So the bills that are relating to your Second Amendment rights that are still alive are all pro-2A. That rocks. That's the end of this week's show. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you come back. This is Guy Relford for The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC.